for the uh, live cast. Uh, someone is asking the question, he suggests that in Buddhism we are encouraged when a desire arises to uh, contemplate it as simply arising and passing away, but that in practice it can be very, very difficult to contemplate the desire in that way and uh, it can be very difficult to even just uh, resist a strong desire. Yeah, and this is uh, quite correct, the second half, about the difficulty. And that is not something typical for you, but um, generally for the mind. Because what we call uh, kilesas or defilements or the desire, tanha, craving, karma chanda and so on, uh, it is very difficult to resist. Maybe the first thing I'd like to point out to simply contemplate the desire as arising and passing away tends to be quite an advanced practice. And in the beginning, it may not work so well. Because as you said yourself, the desires are very strong. And if you are already struggling to even just resist a desire, in the sense that at least we are not acting on the desire by body or speech, we may not be able to completely overcome it mentally, but the first step is at least we don't allow the desire to cause us doing unwholesome action or speech. But if even that is difficult, it is usually very difficult to contemplate the desire in a very successful way. The more fundamental practice is to have mindfulness of the desire but not yet so much to really contemplate it deeply as vipassana, but having sufficient mindfulness that we see it arising and that we understand whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. Because there can also be wholesome desires, beneficial. For example, if you wake up on a Sunday morning <laughs> and you're contemplating, oh, I have a good sleep in, and then a desire arises in you to make good karma, to go to the monastery, to offer food, and to ask a Dhamma question. This is a very good desire. And that desire should be supported. So we have enough mindfulness, we should have enough mindfulness to notice the desire, to recognize it, and then also to understand it as wholesome or unwholesome, beneficial or unbeneficial. And then the next task is not only resisting the desire, but to ideally substitute it with the opposing wholesome quality, if it is unwholesome. For example, uh, we may have been hurt by someone, or our loved ones have been uh, offended or insulted, and now uh, anger arises. And with the anger, there may be a desire arising to take revenge. Now the desire to harm someone, to take revenge, is obviously quite unwholesome. and would be bad karma to indulge in that and to have it coming out in action and speech. So in terms of overcoming a desire, the best way is actually not just to resisting it, but the best and 
topmost recommendation by the Buddha is to substitute it with the opposing quality. And if there's anger and a desire for revenge, then you would have no loving kindness and compassion as the opposing quality. And you're trying to deliberately develop the opposing quality and in this vein um, overcome the desire. Uh, if that is not quite possible, then we can start contemplating uh, the drawbacks, the danger of the desire. You see, the problem is if, if you only try to resist, what usually happens, here's the desire pushing, and here's your willpower pushing in the other direction. Say you're on a diet, you don't eat sugar. And then in the afternoon you get some real strong desire to eat ice cream or some nice cake. So here's a desire pushing. And then you push in the other direction, try to resist it. And uh, often the nature of the desire becomes stronger. And here's your willpower pushing against. And then you have a very tight situation. And over time, there's a strong chance that the willpower gets now overpowered. Because simply by pushing against it, it doesn't really undermine or weaken the desire really very successfully or efficiently. So much better is to try developing the opposite quality. Much better is you know, contemplating the uh, drawbacks the danger of that desire. Yeah. Sorry, um, I, I do actually um, try to contemplate the drawbacks. The, um, the, the things about that is you will, you will encourage aversion if you fail to, um, to, mm -hmm. uh, to resist the desires. If you indulge it, then, then the aversion will hating yourself why you do that um, will, will consequently arise. Mm -hmm. Important is to understand that Sila, the practice of precepts, refers only to anything where your action by body and speech are involved. And if the desire is only mentally, and you can restrain at least the body and the speech, then your precepts are completely pure. And the man should be quite happy if one can do at least that much. And one shouldn't be too hard on oneself or others for the presence of pretty bad and even evil desires. Because if we are brutally honest with ourselves and we're developing mindfulness, we usually do notice that we have quite strong defilements. And in particular, once you start meditating and you actually sit quietly and you look inside what's happening in the mind and you make an effort of resisting the desire, then you suddenly notice how strong they are and what for ugly defilements there are in our heart. So it's important to understand that. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> There's something wrong if we have very ugly desires and we allow them to come out in action and speech and in harming and hurting others and ourselves. But in terms mentally, it's so important to have understanding that these kilesas are there and that they're not beautiful. 
and we have to give ourselves some praise and we have to develop some self-confidence if at least if we can restrain them that doesn't come out in action and speech that's already a great success so it's a little bit the way of looking at it you can blame yourself that you simply have that kind of thing in your mind and then you will get you know, be riddled with guilt and feel upset with yourself or even if you have that in your mind, but at least to restrain your body and speech, you can praise yourself that you at least have that much restraint. And you contemplate you know, that it is normal to have defilements you know, for someone who is not yet enlightened. So it's important not, not to be too hard on ourselves, in particular if you succeed in preserving your precepts. Now, this is one reason that the Buddha kept it quite simple in lay life. Now, five precepts is really not too much. And one advantage of that is now that you can, it's actually achievable that you can keep the five precepts very pure. And that should give you a sense of great joy. And the fact now, that in the mind there's all kind of unwholesome thinking and <coughs> fantasies, one needs quite a bit of patience and forgiveness for that. And in particular, you have to understand that once you go against the stream, it's just like when you're on a river, a fast one, and the mountains, one of these mountain streams where they do white water wafting. If you're just floating with a stream, and it's all smooth and easy, the moment you turn around and now you try to paddle against the current, then it's when you suddenly notice the power of that current. So it's good to be keep in mind. Uh, one reason is simply you know, that you are facing it now and go against it. And then the mind can become quite rebellious. And people have uh, experienced that, you know, that on meditation retreat, you know, just sitting there quietly and meditating, and they may go through anger almost worse than anything they ever had in their whole life. Although there's nothing really happening. No one is attacking you. You're just sitting trying to quietly meditate, but there may be a period coming where the defilement of anger really comes out, or the defilement of lust, or the defilement of laziness and tiredness, or restlessness, that can appear extremely strong. And then you start thinking there's something wrong with you. Or you start thinking there's something wrong with your practice, because before I practiced and tried to meditate, I didn't have it so strong. But there's nothing wrong with you or with the practice. It's just once you turn into the current and try to go against it, then you notice it. What other techniques did you use for fighting the desire? Um, so, I mean, it's just like how you mentioned it. So observing, well, sometimes successful, sometimes not successful. So observing arising and then contemplate uh, its drawback, and then knowing that if you successfully resist it, uh, what what is the, um, the the good things will come afterwards? Uh, like probably reducing the desire next time when it comes comes back mm -hmm. up and then and then slowly endure it for periods, then you will subside mm -hmm. gradually. So and mm -hmm. for the whole process. Um, I will just keep myself to mindful um, and observing that. 
Mm. I don't think uh, any of even the great top masters, the Lumpur Chah, uh, he said, I think you haven't really practiced until you have quiet a few times. Ajahn Man uh, faded, or fainted at least twice, and he collapsed. He practiced in the soul, determinedly that you just flanked out. So it is, it is not easy. It is not easy. And there is nothing wrong with you. And if one is really determined and really twice and to go against the stream, then one uh, is doing ultimately you know, the most, possibly the most difficult thing in the world. Yeah. Another important one is nip it in the bud. You know that idiom, to nip it in the bud? It's like weeds. And if you have a little weed growing, in the beginning you can in the garden and you can with your hand you just pull it out. Once you have got a big lantana brush, it gets very difficult to remove that thing. It's the same with desires. So um, ideally actually in terms of white effort, the first white effort is to make sure that they don't even arise. And only second, once they have arisen, then you try not to overcome them. But better is not to act in such a way that the desire doesn't arise in the first place. And for that one, sense restraint is so important. Now you will notice when you deal with desire that a uh, sense restraint is almost like a little miracle weapon. Now the Buddha gave this nice simile of the most beautiful girl in the country and the guy who was in love with her. Now someone comes and says, oh, I have so much desire, I'm so much in love with the most beautiful girl in the country. And the Buddha asked him, oh, what's her name? And he says, I don't know her name. What's her family? What's her caste? What's her background? No idea. What does she look like? Is she tall or short? I don't know. <laughs> What's her complexion? Dark or very fair? Or No idea. Is she fat or skinny? He's never seen her. He's never heard her voice. Does it make sense to say that he's in love with her? You can't really. So for a desire to arise, you need to have some sense contact in one of the sense doors. And usually in the five physical ones. If you all know it, if you're on a diet and someone puts your favorite food in front of you that you can see it and smell it, it gets very, very difficult. On the other hand, in the monastery, in the afternoon when you don't eat, but no one eats here, and you don't really do anything connected with food, much, much easier. So sense restraint is a very crucial one, dealing with desire, because in that way you prevent the strong desires from coming up. In particular, sense desire for the mind, sense restraint for the mind. What kind of thoughts and fantasies you indulge in. 
and then uh, covering sense restraint further, you can direct your attention to things that make it unlikely for the desire to arise. For example, a sensual desire doesn't usually arise when you're looking at a corpse, a decomposing corpse. Or nowadays, what I can really recommend is in the YouTube life surgery videos. Of course, the Buddha didn't talk about that because there was no YouTube or videos. <laughs> and there wasn't surgery like nowadays, but I personally find that by far the most effective. This is incredible sobering. And if you watch a live facelift surgery, when they cut open here, and then you can pull it off, and it can go underneath with a suction device, and then like, like a little vacuum cleaner, <laughs> slurping off the fat, and then, then you just pull the skin. You can, can observe that all. Nose job, eye job, tummy tuck, cutting open fat and if you use if you look at that for one hour and it's not very likely to arouse central passion. Quite the opposite. Or if it may arise aversion. <laughs> so if you have an issue with anger and aversion then that may not be very helpful. So you may want to look into it not so much only dealing with a desire which has arisen, but strengthening your practice in terms of sense restraint and in terms of what is called Nayoniso Manasikada, wise attention. What do we pay attention to? And uh, not eating so much and not sleeping so much can be very helpful against desire as well. <laughs> are still not easy. But it's the most uh, rewarding thing. It's the, mo the only thing that really has, uh, that leads to ultimately achieving anything, because everything else is impermanent. Whatever else we achieve in the world, and when people do very difficult things, and winning a gold medal is very difficult in the Olympic Games. Winning a Nobel Prize is extremely difficult. But even if you win the Nobel Prize or a gold medal, you die, and what is left of it? Whereas if you win against the defilements and cut them out, now this is, then it's all done. You have total freedom, total liberation release. So it's ultimately the only thing which is really worthwhile to fully engage and put full effort. Thanks so much for the question. And did, did that make any sense, or is that useful? Sense. And my Anamodana to you, this is a real warrior. This is a real soldier. <laughs> this is the guy who really deserve the Victoria Cross. Not the ones who commit war crimes or atrocities, but someone who is willing to fight the battle of defeating of winning the battle internally as a true hero. 
So, Anamodana and Mudita for your noble find. question is, uh, what is the real meaning of taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha? And uh, there's obviously on different levels of understanding. Some people think quite externally about the Buddha, where they have been conditioned from young age, you know, that he is the kind of supreme teacher and you know, deserve all this respect and veneration. But there may not be a deep understanding of what Buddha actually means. So ultimately, and it depends on your understanding of these three things. And that means that a true refuge is basically only in a stream enter. They've taken true refuge in the sense that they have finally seen the Dhamma. And when you have seen the Dhamma, the Buddha is obviously the person who first saw it in this dispensation. And they... Um, Savaka Sangha is defined as all those who have seen the Dhamma as well. So you understand these two as well. And this is the reason that the taking refuge of a stream enter is unshakable. They are incapable of ever falling away from that. They are incapable and it's an impossibility that they would take any other um, order or organization or community as a refuge would be incapable of ever taking another spiritual teacher as a refuge other than the Buddha. And they would be incapable of starting to believe in some other religion, whether it's eternalism, monotheism, or some form of materialism, annihilationism. All of that would be completely impossible because they have kind of truly taken refuge by understanding. So in the beginning we take refuge more out of faith and also out of affection, being conditioned from a young age to have this high respect and affection to the Buddha, and then a little bit deepening the understanding. And then hopefully we can, as we deepen our practice, uh, substitute faith more and more by uh, knowledge and insight and wisdom. And as we do that, now our uh, going to refuge becomes also deeper. The Satisampajanya is a quality in the Noble Eightfold Path and in the Dhamma. And it's a quality that you develop in your own heart. Now, often in the beginning, people think about the Buddha mostly as an external being, the Prince Gotama, who lived 2,500 years ago and so on. But as your understanding deepens, you understand that it goes about what happens in your own heart. The Buddha means awakened. So it's also another quality of awakening which you take refuge in, and which can be an experience internally, yourself, in your own heart. Aparapatriya Satu Sasane, 
that you're no longer depending as a stream entrance, uh, they will no longer depend on uh, any external things. Because now they have found a refuge, kind of manifesting in their own heart. As so in the sense you take refuge in all these stomach qualities, not just Satisampajanyana, but also in faith and in wisdom, energy and samadhi. Now the Eightfold Path in this one description of the Dhamma. And really taking refuge means that you try not to develop it in your heart. Yes, as Bhavatana. This, this is why the highest aspiration is that you aspire to the karma that leads to the end of all karma. If you make a karma with the aspiration that you have a happy rebirth, either in Deva Loka or as a, in a successful, attractive, wealthy a human being living in peace and being well-looking and having a happy marriage and so on, everything which one can desire in human life or in deva life, you're quite correct now, that uh, still implies now, bhavatanha. And you could never overcome bhavatanha in that way. Now this is why the Buddha now, talks about now, the third kind of karma, which leads to the end of karma. The aspiration that uh, all the good karma you're making, not so much that it leads you to a good rebirth, but that the good karma you're making is helping you here and now in unfolding the Eightfold Path and realizing Nibbana. And the crucial factor there is the happiness you get from good karma. So you use the happiness, the parmaja, the gladness, the rapture, the bliss, the piti, sukha, which uh, generosity and good karma provides, even more so when you reflect on it. You use that very deliberately as a, a supporting factor for samadhi. And then you use the samadhi as a supporting factor for insight and developing wisdom. And uh, obviously in the wisdom and insight and the condition and cause now for freedom and release. So this is now how um, a Dharma practitioner like Lady Visaka now was praised by the Buddha. When she wanted to get now, the eight boons from the Buddha now asking for, she wants to give robes to all the bhikkhunis, um, bathing cloth, I mean, and bathing cloth to all the bhikkhus, and food for the sick monks, and the morning brekkie, the wise girl, and food for the monks who are looking after the sick, and special food for monks who are arriving newly, and special food for monks who go on a journey. You can notice that she's a billionaire, that she can afford an offering, all of that. <laughs>
And I didn't say it's a bad wish. It's a very wholesome one. If you aspire for a wholesome rebirth, that you stay in connection with the Dhamma and so on, that's all good. Now the trick is that the Buddha Dhamma reaches very, very high. And in the end, you have to start giving up and letting go even of very, very wholesome things, which many people fail to ever aspire to because they never reach that high. What a Dhamma practitioner has to give up on the later stages. So in the beginning, it's more important to start getting out of unwholesome aspirations, making them more and more wholesome. But ultimately, we should aspire that now our good karma will be in a cause of our own realization of Nibbana. And the crucial factor is usually another happiness and joy and bliss. And the reason that Lady Visaka was the foremost of those practicing dana declared by the Buddha is not that if she was a billionaire and she could give so, so much materially, but when the Buddha asked her, why do you want to give all these eight things? And she explained that then when she ever heard you know, that someone has attained Nibbana, a monk or a nun, she could be virtually certain that she had given something to them. And then she would have so much happiness that that happiness you know, would lead to rapture and bliss and the rapture and bliss to samadhi. And with the samadhi she can uh, develop the uh, seven factors of enlightenment Noble Eightfold Path and, and realize Nibbana. And that is when he said, yeah, okay, so you do that all. And that's one reason that he declared to another foremost female lay disciple in terms of dana. Because she was not doing it primarily to be even richer in her next life or to be in some high devaloka. She was practicing generosity as part of her development here and now of developing the Edward path and reaching Bhavana Samadhi Panya Samadhi and then wisdom inside. It was so in our day-to-day practice we come across conditions that are unfavorable, temptations and all kinds of things that will um, pull us in the wrong direction. So Taking refuge in terms of, in relation to sati, as in remembering, what does it mean with taking refuge to the Buddha and the Dhamma? Help us recall what is right, what is wrong, what is wholesome, what, and then we help us to make decisions in, in terms of what path to take. I think that the taking refuge is interestingly always done together with taking the five precepts. And just like everything in the Buddha Dhamma, is not just a theory or philosophy or some mental gymnastics, but it's very pragmatic, it's very practical, it's opanayaka. And uh, usually taking refuge, uh, if it's really taking refuge, at least to some extent, it will mean that one changes something in one's life and that one makes a very uh, determined effort in developing the Eightfold Path. And that one makes an effort, for example, in keeping at least the five precepts. So no, that is maybe, you know, coming back to that question, what does ref- taking refuge mean, even if it's not yet on the level of 
for Nibbana or in a stream entry. At least we should take refuge in such a way that we immediately uh, implement it into um, practical action and effort. And this is why it's always connected straight away with taking the five precepts. And if anyone says, no, I'm taking refuge from the Buddha, but they're not changing their life and maybe they continue in a, a killing, stealing, adultering, lying and getting sloshed and uh, acting by you know, harming and hurting other beings and harming themselves. So someone, what kind of taking refuge is that? And it doesn't make any sense. I always like to say that you know, the teaching of the Buddha is not like a fantasy novel, but it's like a cooking book or an instruction manual for your new washing machine or something like that, something very, very practical. And no one is usually spending their nights reading instruction manuals for washing machines, which they don't even have, just for fun. Although some, some women confess that they're reading cookbooks for fun at night. I think it's not that common. Now usually you use that to, to do something very specific. And this is how the Dhamma is meant. And this is how taking refuge is meant. Yeah, that's a good technique, coming back to the first question, the fighting desires when they threaten to overwhelm us. The one sense is in the using hiri otapa, the shame and conscience, this very uh, crucial quality of the restraining ourselves. It's actually good that this comes up. It was very important for dealing with desire. And the moment when you remind yourself, now I've taken refuge in the Buddha, you probably feel quite ashamed to have a bad conscience and to do something, something bad. It's almost like betrayal. So I would agree that this is a very good uh, way of um, strengthening one's sense of shame and conscience and one's sense now of restraint. Someone just shared another good way of fighting desire. developing shame and conscience. That's a crucial quality for resisting desire. And remembering that I've taken refuge in the Buddha. This is why we do that very publicly. I can come here on Saturday morning, it's even on YouTube. I mean, they, again, they don't really see you there, but that's the idea, not to have a public ceremony. You can necessarily do it at home. But if you declare that in front of the monk, in front of your Dhamma friends and in front of a YouTube live stream, it hopefully gives a stronger gives, gives a stronger sense of shame. And then if uh, Saturday evening someone meets you in one of the clubs in the valley, they can pull out their phone and play the uh, live cast from the morning where you're taking the five precepts which should be very effective. Or you can play it to yourself. When the temptation comes up, or oh, this is where I did taking refuge in five precepts. Oh yes, yeah. Is it actually your first time here, both of you? Or? Oh, it's 
Second time, okay. So you have a problem that uh, your life is very busy, very stressful, and then when in the evening you try to meditate, you often fall asleep within a few minutes. That can indicate that you have a chronic sleep deficit. Now sleep can be a defilement and people are just lazy, but sleep can also be, in a, a strong need for sleep can also be a result if you simply don't get enough sleep and there's too much uh, work and so on in your life and too much stress. And then when you start to relax in meditation, that manifests and there's also something you need. So uh, you may want to look into it and whether you can get more sleep. And if you're, for example, on holiday and you're sleeping plenty for a while that you can catch up a sleep deficit, and the problem still persists, then you know it's laziness and tiredness. It's more like a defilement. But if you notice, once I sleep a lot, and then this problem is gone, that would have shown that it was a true chronic sleep deficit. People can have that in their busy lives. Uh, next question, what is a good way of starting meditating? Um, First of all, people often don't have enough time, at least what they claim. <laughs> I usually ask them back, if your life is so busy, does that mean that you never feel angry? So you have enough time to get angry, no? <laughs> this is already, no? and if we still have time and opportunity for anger to arise, and there must also be time and opportunity for diminishing anger. But a very good trick which I recommend to people is meditating in the morning. If you have difficulties falling asleep in the evening after a very busy day, rather meditate in the morning. The argument which they bring up against me then is usually that they're too tired in the morning. And it's too difficult to get up early. When they say, I don't have enough time to meditate, I just say, it's very easy, just get an hour up early in the morning. In the morning, get an hour earlier than normal, get up an hour earlier, and then you have got an hour time. And then they say, it's difficult to get up so early. And I say, that's not really true. Because if you go to bed at 8 p.m., it should be quite easy to get up at five. It's nine hours of sleep. So what is actually really difficult is to go to bed early. <laughs> it's actually not difficult to get up early. The, the difficulty is only to go to bed early. So all you have to do is getting to bed an hour earlier. And then you can get up an hour earlier and there you have got one hour. Isn't it great? 
And if we go to bed two hours earlier, you can get up an hour earlier and sleep an hour longer. And then you will be very, very uh, refreshed and bright. Very smart, no? <laughs> so it may be, maybe an idea of trying in the morning to meditate. I have to confess that by natural biorhythm, I'm a night owl myself and have always been, so I don't find it very easy to get up early in the morning. So for some people it may just not work so easily, but give it a try. For, for some people who are more like early birds, it's fantastic. And your mind is already calm and has digested a lot of the stress overnight from sleeping. It's really very quiet. Yeah, another one. So, um, as a layman who has the intention to do cultivation at home and progress, um, is there like a structure or system one should follow? Like, you know, education here, we have like Hindi year one, year two, and then go to university. Um, but as a layman to do cultivation at home, is that something like that? Someone is asking, do we have... Uh, clearly graduated program, like a little bit you go first to kindy and then to uh, primary school, secondary school, college, postgraduate, and so on. Um, my suggestion would be wide view, wide intention, wide communication, wide action, wide livelihood, wide effort, white mindfulness and white samadhi. It's not quite as graduated as kindi because all the steps, you cannot practice them one after the other, but there's still this graduated progress. If that sounds too complicated, I would suggest sila, samadhi, panya, virtue, which means skillful interaction with other beings. Samadhi, that means uh, training your mind, your thinking, and the defilements, intentions, and wisdom, which means vipassana, insight, understanding, and uh, ultimately cutting away all the defilements. What do you think? So we have something like that. Yeah. There's also more in the gradual training, the starting with virtue, sense restraint, and so on. On the Pubisika. So, yeah, yeah, there is it. Although the nature of mental training is such that you can't make it really like, like a staircase. It's not like you practice wide view for one year only, and then you practice one year only white intention, that, that is not possible. It's more holistic. But there's still a kind of graduation. The most important thing is to get going. <laughs> but to worry too much. But the easiest one is actually just practicing generosity and kindness. Just do something kind and generous to other beings. It's maybe the very easiest and 
straightforward way of getting started. And then uh, taking on another refuge, five precepts, uh, studying the basic teachings. Did that help? You don't look fully, look a little bit disappointed. Why, why did you think the question is cynical? It wasn't cynical at all. It was a very valid question. The Buddha was quite well known for teaching or for explaining that the stomma is a gradual anapobisika. As it would be very difficult. Generally, you know, the quality of being mindful and observing and knowing tends to be very much you know, on the side of developing the path. But it depends also a little bit what exactly do you observe and in which way. So just observing one's heartbeat um, is not really one of the meditation objects the Buddha has pointed out. I wouldn't recommend that. It's also not what any, to my knowledge, any of the Ajans in our tradition would teach. The breath is much better. Can't really go much wrong by observing the breath. But you want to observe it in such a way that it's very gratifying and cooling and smoothing and soothing and joyful and inducing the mind to be happy and bright. So if you observe the breath, and you feel more and more tired and more and more miserable and more and more heavy, then this is not what the Buddha meant. If you're observing the breath and you're feeling lighter and brighter and more joyful and more aware, then you're observing the breath in the way the Buddha did mean. I think breath meditation is sometimes almost overemphasized, and you may want to try something like metta, loving kindness, and like recollection of the Buddha. Many people find that easier because the breath is a very subtle meditation object. And it gets even more subtle while you observe it. So it usually requires quite a strong mindfulness was a favorite of the Lord Buddha himself, but the Lord Buddha had obviously an outrageously strong faculty of mindfulness. Other people sometimes find it easier to use more like a mantra, the metta, like may all beings be happy and well, may all beings be happy and well, and may be easier for them to focus on. Or just repeating Buddha-ho, Buddha-ho, Buddha-ho. Have you ever tried metta or Buddha-ho? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're happy with the breath, it's an excellent meditation object. But if you find it difficult, then maybe try either Buddha or loving kindness. I also tend to think that, for example, loving kindness brings, for most people, more palpable results more quickly. You usually feel something from practicing loving kindness, some happiness 
I think most people feel that quicker and more easily than from watching the breath. Okay. Thank you so much for starting with a very good question. And Anamutana for your patience and all the good questions.